You're listening to Clearing the Haze, episode number nine, the do's and don'ts of drug and alcohol testing policy development. Welcome to this week's episode of Clearing the Haze. I'm your host, Chuck Marting. With all the different drug legalization changes and testing decisions being made affecting drug-free workplaces, we knew it was time to bring a guest on the podcast who has a background in and currently helps businesses with policy development and implementation. Our guest today is Mr. James A. Greer. Jim is the president of Accredited Drug Testing and its affiliate companies, Coastal Drug Testing and Smart Drug Testing, all nationwide companies providing drug, alcohol, and DNA testing for employers and individuals needing testing services. Jim has been in the drug testing business since 1993 and currently serves as the chairman of the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. Jim holds a degree from Seminole State College and is a graduate of Cornell University's prestigious executive leadership program. He's been recognized for his business and governmental affairs experiences by many public and private organizations. He currently resides in Florida with his wife, Lisa, and five children. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being on Clearing the Haze. Well, it's a pleasure to be here today, Chuck, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, you know, today, as you mentioned, uh, in today's society, um, one of the biggest things that employers are facing is drug testing related issues. Should they drug test? Uh, if they drug test, should they test for marijuana? Uh, all the issues that we read about every day in the paper mm -hmm. and see and hear on TV affect an employer's right to be a drug-free workplace. Yeah. I, you know, I'm right there with you. I think a lot of this, too, I think it's uh, the time that we're presenting this right now is pretty crucial. We have uh, the FMCSA Clearinghouse that's coming into play. And I have found, and I don't know if you've found this as well, but I'm finding a lot of my own clients and others that they have not looked at their drug testing policies for quite a while. They have a tendency of putting them on the shelf, and that's the last time they've seen them. And part of the clearinghouse is them having to include that part of it into their policies. And so I, I thought it would be important to talk to you about policies how a company should go about reviewing those and, and what they really need to look at and in, in knowing that they have to make those adjustments. Well, you know, you said a lot of companies put it on the shelf, but a lot of companies don't even have one. That's true, uh, too. And, and you know, uh, we emphasize here, as I know you do, that every company, regardless of size, small, medium, and large employers, uh, regardless of the number of employees, if they're going to do drug testing, they should have a written policy uh, they should distribute that policy to all the employees. They should have the employees acknowledge uh, that they've received the policy. You know, we find many times that when an employer becomes a client and they ask um, or we ask them to see their drug policy, uh, they send us a paragraph in their employee manual. Yeah. And that's not a drug policy, as you know. Uh, our drug policy runs about 11, 12 pages at a minimum. And just having a paragraph in an employee handbook that says, we do drug testing, uh, it does not suffice. And unfortunately, employers usually find this out when they get sued or become involved in litigation where an attorney is asking for a copy of the employer's drug policy. And then the attorney finds out uh, for the former employee that there is no policy. 
Um, You know, the other thing that a policy does for an employer, as you know, Chuck, is it defines what happens in certain circumstances. Uh, One of the biggest questions we get from clients all the time is, well, if it's a diluted specimen, uh, what do we do? And our answer is, well, what does your policy say you do? And then the conversation usually goes south after that because you find out that either A, they don't have a policy, or B, the policy is silent when it comes to things like that. So a drug policy is not something that you're just telling employees, I'm going to drug test you. It should be the Bible, as we say around here, of everything relating to drug testing. Uh, what, When to do it, how to do it, what type of test do you do, what are the uh, actions taken if there's a positive drug test? Is there a second chance provided or is there a termination? Uh, and most importantly, it needs to be consistent among all employees. Now, if they're DOT-regulated employees, certainly there's some significant differences in a non-DOT-regulated employer. But either way, it should be in writing. It should be distributed to the employees. It should be updated. You mentioned that. It should be updated, I certainly think, annually. Mm-hmm. Someone needs to look at it. Unfortunately, it usually gets updated when there's a crisis. Uh, it it's, doesn't contain something, any information about something that's happened in the business. So then they start looking at it or they become involved in an unemployment compensation hearing or a lawsuit, and then the policy gets revised. Yeah. So, Jim, you've probably run, run across this as well, and I wanted to get your take on it and what your suggestion would be. I've had a lot of clients that have, have you know, businesses, they, they invest in certain things, and I don't think that sometimes they put enough credence into that policy and how detailed it should be to cover them uh, for things that happen in the workplace. I've seen people that have gone onto the internet and we can go do a search right now and we could find a, a DOT policy that's floating out there and they'll, they'll go ahead and print that. They'll sign it, stick it in their book and think they're okay. When you're looking for somebody to do your drug testing, what should an employer look for, for somebody to give them that guidance and direction? They don't want to just go to any website and print something. So what would your recommendation be? Uh, doing policies yourself, what should they look for in someone uh, to help them in developing those policies and procedures? Well, I think one of the first questions uh, a company should ask a potential developer of a policy or a drug testing company is, tell me all the potential circumstances I might face here as an employer relating to drug testing. What are your recommendations to those situations? And how are you going to put that into my policy? So, you know, when, when an, we, have, we face it all the time, as I know you do, there are unfortunately many drug testing companies out there that y- you could call up and they don't even know what a DOT test is, and they're a drug testing company. Yeah. So when a, when a potential client or an employer is talking to someone that they want to manage their drug testing program or develop their policy, they should have them tell the employer what circumstances might they face doing drug testing in their business, and how to incorporate incorporate those situations into a drug policy. And if a drug testing company can't answer those questions or can't tell you what might occur down the road, that's not the person to hire to do your policy. You know, and, and every policy is unique. 
you can have you know you can have a template everyone generally has a template to start with but every employer's policy has unique situations and unique requirements to that policy just printing out a policy off the internet distributing it to everyone can get you in a lot of trouble when circumstances arise and the policy is not unique to your business as a example when an employer says well fire mary for a positive drug test, but keep Joe because we like Joe and he's been here a while. A good policy says you can't do that. It has to be consistent. It has to be a, across the board. Whatever adverse action or whatever action an employer takes because of a positive test or refusal to test or a diluted specimen or anything of that nature needs to be consistent. I had a client uh, in Georgia a few years back that the president's son tested positive in a, in a large company. And uh, everyone in the company knew that the son was allowed to keep his job, but everybody else got fired. And I went around and around with the owner on that situation. And being a father of five, uh, I know how difficult it could be. Yeah. But I told him over and over, I said, you're just completely eradicating your drug policy by allowing your son to continue to work there after he's tested positive, but everyone else gets fired. And later down the road, he ended up having a problem with another employee that he terminated who used his the, the employer's son as part of the case to use against him. And, and you bring up a very good point because I've seen that as well. Um, you have the employer that maybe the individual isn't a, a family member, but it's an employee that has really contributed to that culture and to that place of employment. And until they've done the drug test, they didn't know that there was even an issue or an addiction problem. And now it's come to surface and now they're, they have that dilemma. Are we going to be consistent with what our policy says or are we going to make an exception? And, and so I, I think that you're, you're very, very right in, in what you're saying there because the, there has to be some consistency and it has to be, Across the board, you can't have that time of favoritism at that point because you have your other employees that are watching. If you have an employer that uh, believes in second chances in life, that's fine. I, I don't argue yeah. with any employer who says, uh, well, you know, Jim, I'd rather give them a second chance. Well, if that's what you want to do in your place of business, it's your business. But we got to start building the foundation from there. You can't make that decision down the road when a positive test occurs. It needs to be in your policy at the beginning, you know, and, th and then you could maybe add a, a, a tier system, a second chance, and then termination if there's another. But you can't make those decisions a year down the road when an employee tests positive. They need to be made at the very beginning when you're writing your policy out. Correct. So I know with, with some of our clients, the question that we get is they have both DOT and non-safety sensitive positions in their workplace and they have one policy are they able to just have one policy blanket policy for everybody or what is what is the guidelines on that what should they be doing with that well there are a lot of dot regulated employers that do have one policy however uh, we recommend and i know dot recommends that there be two separate policies you distribute a policy that's related to DOT to your DOT employees, 
and you, uh, you you distribute a policy to your non-DOT regulated employees that's separate from DOT. You just don't have some language in there in the big policy about DOT because there's a lot of information that relates to a DOT drug test that's very extensive. Mm -hmm. So just putting it into a general policy doesn't make sense. Your non-DOT employees are reading it wondering, what what does all this mean? Uh, Stand down, safety sensitive, uh, substance abuse professional. So all that type of language relating to DOT should be in a separate policy. Now, you could have a situation where you had a DOT uh, regulated employee where you distribute the DOT policy to, but then you also distribute the company policy to to the same employee. But when it relates to DOT drug testing, the policy should be separate. There should be a separate document, uh, an extensive addendum, if you might, that separates the two. But you could have a situation which we see where a DOT employee uh, is following the DOT drug testing requirements, but then has to test under the employer's policy that's non-DOT. The biggest thing that happens at times is the DOT employee fa- uh, passes the DOT drug test and fails the company's 10 panel test. Yeah. Uh, so that's because there's a distinction between the DOT policy and the company employer's policy. So there's there's also the, the different aspects of it. I've seen some companies that just with their DOT, they're doing the urine testing. That's the only thing that they're doing because that's what's approved with DOT right now. But then you have the the non-DOT where they're having maybe saliva testing or even hair testing. I've seen that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's anything wrong with going ahead, like you're saying, keeping them in that standard of this is what you're going to do for DOT, but our policy says you also need to be tested under these guidelines as well. Can they do that? Well, yeah, absolutely. An employer has the right to have his own company-wide drug policy. As an example, the employer might say, I do hair testing here of all employees. And then he's got some DOT regulated employees that right now, as you mentioned, is urine. Uh, He tests them under DOT. They're completely fine. They pass with flying colors. But then he tells them in two weeks after they do their DOT test to go take their their random hair test that the company provides, and they fail that. Uh, Whatever the employer's policy said non-DOT policy is what would happen to that employee. He he might have a termination provision, but you wouldn't report it to DOT because it's not a DOT violation. Sometimes people find that odd that here's a DOT regulated employee um, gets fired from the company for failing a 10 panel or a hair test or a 12 panel, but it doesn't affect his ability to perform DOT regulated Um, functions. And that's clearly because when you do a DOT test, you're operating under the authority of a DOT drug test based on the mode you're in. Mm -hmm. When you're taking the hair test or the 10 panel, you're operating under the employer's authority to be a drug for the workplace. Now, I've seen that in circumstances where an employer gets confused as to what reasonable suspicion is for testing. So they may just hear, have hearsay. They don't have enough for what would be considered a reasonable suspicion test. But they want to get this, they want to test this employee. And so they figure, well, I'll just do a reasonable suspicion test and do that. But I've seen it 
that's one of the main reasons why a company may require them to do the non-DOT portion of the testing so that they're able to do it under different circumstances. Is there anything wrong with doing that, or can that be something that can come back to bite them as well if they're wanting to do that kind of a thing? Or is that something that, with reasonable suspicion, you need to know what reasonable suspicion is? Well, when you t send them for a reasonable suspicion test under your scenario, are they going for a DOT test or a non-DOT test? Because I, I've seen it as both. I, I, I think, I, I guess my question, Jim, is how, what is the best way for an employer to understand what reasonable suspicion is and, and what those guidelines are? What would you say under a policy that reasonable suspicion uh, definition would be? Well, I think when it comes to reasonable suspicion, and we just had this come up at a very large meeting with truckers mm -hmm. about two weeks ago that I spoke at, um, DOT defines circumstances that you can send a regulated employee for a drug test defined as reasonable suspicion. They have to be at work. They have to be performing safety-sensitive functions either immediately prior or after. You know all that. Um, so w when someone says, I'm going to go for a DOT drug test, there are specific requirements that the employer has to follow to be able to designate that test as a reasonable suspicion test. That's a DOT test. Now, a company test relating to, that's non-DOT relating to reasonable suspicion, uh, he, he has a little more broad uh, determinations that he can make. Um, but he still should follow his policy and his staff, supervisory staff, should be trained in how to identify reasonable suspicion. Um, you know, reasonable suspicion could be defined, you know, we, we had this question, I'll give you an example of what we had the question. Um, a DOT regulated employee uh, is sent for a company 10 panel drug test. Okay. And uh, he, uh, it comes back rejected, it comes back um, diluted, mm -hmm. um, something that's out of the ordinary for a company test. And there's some evidence that it might have been adulterated. Now, we've got to follow the bouncing ball. This is a company 10 panel test Yeah, for your listeners out there. The employer whose DOT says, oh, well, I'll consider that reasonable suspicion under DOT and I'll send them for a DOT test. I said, that's a problem. Because whatever occurred that you sent him for that 10 panel was outside of his DOT. You might have heard he did something Saturday. DOT clearly defines they must exhibit signs of drug use or alcohol use related to their work as a DOT employee. You can't hear a rumor that they did something Friday. So the employer was saying that whenever I hear that or anything comes up odd about a my company-wide test, I send them for a DOT reasonable suspicion test. And I said, well, that, that's a real problem because you, you have nothing to send them for a reasonable suspicion DOT test for other than your gut feeling. And when you're dealing with DOT, you know as well, there's specific education and training that supervisors should go through and complete to be um, qualified as someone who can determine that 
a DOT regulated employee may be under the influence of drugs. Yeah. So there are distinctions, as you said. Exactly. Um, I'm finding a lot of it is is probably education of our supervisors or even business owners understanding what drug testing is and what it isn't and when it's appropriate to, to drug test and when it's not. Should that policy cover the training that not only they do for a supervisor, but also for their employees as well? Is it, is it a vital thing to, to train your employees as to why they're being drug tested and, and what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. Every policy should have an employee education section, a supervisory section that talks about reasonable suspicion. Employees should be educated on drug use. They should be educated on how to identify or help supervisors identify drug use in their workplace. So a policy should have all that. And most importantly, employers should conduct that training on a regular basis. Supervisors that don't know how to identify reasonable suspicion can get the company in a lot of trouble if they find themselves in court. Because be assured, a plaintiff's attorney is going to ask the supervisor to define the signs of drug use. Yeah. And when they can't do it, and they can't do it clearly, uh, the juries or judges don't like that. Yeah. Isn't that true? Um, We're seeing a lot of different things that are coming into play now with the drug testing. Now we have the expanded opiates. Do you see other things that might be coming later on with uh, DOT that we're dealing with, such as fentanyl, things like that? Well, I think one of the things you're going to see down the road is when DOT goes to uh, hair testing, the ability to do hair testing, uh, maybe oral saliva down the road that's going to have a sooner reaction. You're going to see more positive. I, I often say that when they go to hair testing, they better hold on because uh, you know, right now we're looking at three to five days on a urine test, drugs in the system in most cases. When DOT formally allows hair testing, which can go back 90 days for a DOT drug test, uh, we better hold on because half the industry is going to have to stand down. Yeah. Uh, maybe not half, but certainly a, uh, a, a significant percentage is going to have to stand down because one of the biggest questions we get from single operators is how long does a DOT drug test go back? How long can they detect drugs in my system? So if they're making those inquiries, there's a reason. But a hair test going back three months, uh, just hold on when that happens. Yeah. Jim, there's other things that are coming up as well. And one of the things that I'm getting a lot of questions on, especially when it comes to policies and procedures, and that is with the use of CBD. And I don't know if you're running across that as well, but just in, in our case with our consortium, we had nine drivers this last quarter that were violated coming back positive for THC on their drug test for DOT. All nine of those drivers came back to me and said it was because of CBD use. Now, obviously, I can't prove that that's the case. Because the test is testing for tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. It's not going to be able to differentiate between the two. And I think that's part of the problem. But we're having a lot of confusion because people are saying, well, it's legal. But yet FMCSA is saying it's still considered a Schedule One drug. You cannot have it. 
And this stuff is everywhere right now. You can get it in any of your major stores, your gas stations, and all over. And people are seeing it, and so they think that it's okay to use, and they're hearing all these stories. How does an employer deal with that within that workplace policy, especially when you have non-DOT, where they might say, well, it's okay for these guys to use it, but you can't. Is is there liability in that in allowing it for one set of employees but not another? And how would you best address that in your policies? Well, I think the first thing that while CBD may be legal, uh, if it contains, as you know, a certain amount of THC in it, then you're going to test for marijuana. And there's no way around that, whether it's DOT or whether it's non-DOT. Uh, the, the, the lab and the medical review officers don't come back and say, oh, well, you know, and we think it was this when it was THC. We thought of CBD or anything of that nature. What I always say is a positive test for marijuana is a positive test for marijuana is a positive test for marijuana. Whether you, uh, a magician put it in your system or whether you rub CBD on your toe <laughs> or anything of that, it's, it's a positive. Yep. Now, I will tell you this. I, I do find that government has failed in this area to give clear, definitive information to its citizens out there. Exactly. Uh, you, you, we have not, everything is moving ahead of us. We are getting ahead of our skis, as they say. And the problem is you have CBD oils out there that people may be using. Uh, I've never used it, but I know people who have told me it helps them in certain ways with their aching legs, their hurt knees, their recent knee surgery, rubbing it on their knees. I mean, these are people that I know personally that aren't making this stuff up. So, you know, the, the problem with that is, is when the manufacturer of that puts THC and a higher level in that, and they test positive for marijuana use, the manufacturer is not regulated like he should be, where there's any punitive uh, action taken against them. The government hasn't established clear guidelines relating to them. People are losing their jobs in some cases. Now, I'll also say that as life is, many people who say, oh my goodness, that was the oil, I wasn't smoking a joint, they're not really telling the truth in a lot of cases. Correct. But there is a percentage that is telling the truth. Yeah. And and government has really failed to help its citizens get through this maze about it. And part of that problem is because government doesn't know how to solve this issue because they're caught in this quandary of states legalizing marijuana. Mm-hmm. CBD oil now being on the open market and being purchased by everybody uh, from, uh, you know, we've got a, uh, uh, a nursery here, not a nursery of children, but a uh, tree nursery, and they've got something up on their marquee that they're selling those oils now. Um, it, it's, it's just a real uh, mess out there with no clear answers, no clear answers coming from the one people that should be giving it, and that's the government. Correct. Because they don't know how to solve this issue right now, because I believe they think, as others do, the last shoe is the federal government to fall, to drop, Mm -hmm. removing marijuana from Schedule 1. So there's probably a lot of people, uh, the FDA and others, that are just caught in the middle and don't know what answer to give about all this. Correct. 
And I and I think that's what's confusing for employers, not really knowing whether it's okay or not, but still knowing that they have to address it in that policy and procedure. And I am I'm telling our our people that call us or employers that call us that, that they have to consider it, they have to put it in there um, just because of the liability that you have. Now, I don't know if it's the same in, in the state of Florida, but here in Colorado, if even if somebody was to take CBD, even if they're in a non-DOT position and they're driving a company car and they get into an accident, if there's serious bodily injury that's involved, they're going to be mandatorily drug tested whether they want to be or not. And if that test comes back as a positive for THC, what kind of liability are you looking at as a company when they're in a company car and they're the causation of the accident and that person tests positive? So I think that's that's why it's very important that they address these things in those policies and procedures. Now, I like that you said that, that you should be checking these policies yearly and that it's just not something that it's one and done and put on the shelf. And that's what I'm finding right now. So is it enough for these guys to do the reevaluation of that policy quarter or yearly like that themselves? Or is that something that they should talk to individuals like yourself who do these policies and are able to give them that guidance and direction? Should they still come back to you for those things? Or what's your recommendation on that? Yeah, I don't think an employer should self-develop their own drug policy. Uh, you know, I was talking to someone just yesterday, and uh, I made a, a he runs a uh, uh, air conditioning company here. And, and I told him I don't know how to fix air conditioning units at homes, and he shouldn't try and be a drug testing provider. <laughs> and he laughed at me and, 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 and understood and said, you're right, Jim, you should do our policy. But, uh, you know, they should certainly note and keep a log of circumstances that have occurred over the last year or since the policy was looked at last time. And then they should provide that information to their drug testing provider or whoever's doing their, it might be their attorney, whoever's doing their drug policy, they should certainly say this happened a couple months ago, you know, and we followed the policy, but do, should we change it in any way? Um, but, you know, construction companies and air conditioning companies and, and uh, cruise ship lines, uh, you know, unless they have someone who is uh, specifically familiar with drug policy regulations and DOT regulations and, and court cases around the country, which I know both you and I follow closely, uh, they shouldn't be tinkering with their policy relating to drugs. Uh, they should let somebody else, uh, because, you know, when any company's trying to do their own policy, uh, they end up calling us 10 times asking us questions about the policy that they're writing. Like, could you tell me what is a diluted specimen? And, and I sometimes laugh because, well, you said you were going to write the policy, so you ought to know what a diluted specimen is. <laughs> and then finally, and finally they say, okay, we'll pay you to do it because exactly. we don't really know what in the world we're doing here. Or you, or you find out that they wait until it's, it's actually too late. They've had that accident, and they may have talked to you a few months ago. And, and you told them, and you told them how much it's going to cost to do this, this policy for them, and they're just putting it off, and then something happens. Um, I know that there are circumstances that come about with every business, and not every business is going to be in a position to be able to, to 
look into these things. And so I think cost is probably one of their biggest things. What is one of the things that they can look at with the cost and being able to justify that? Is there things within a business that, that would help them in finding the, the, the money to change or to, to make and develop that policy? Are they going to be able to find it in other places? Well, I think anytime an employer decides, Chuck, that they're going to be a drug-free workplace, that they're going to conduct drug testing, they're going to conduct alcohol testing, they're going to have a pre-employment testing program or a random program, whatever the case may be. They shouldn't do it, uh, you know, uh, half-ass. <laughs> Pardon me. For, no, you're but right. They, they shouldn't do it that way. Uh, if they're going to be a drug-free workplace, if they're going to do drug testing, a lot of potential liability comes with that decision, but a lot of benefits come with that decision, too. Exactly. You get better employees. You reduce sick time. You reduce your health care costs. You get more productive employees. There's a lot, lot of a, a long list of benefits to being a drug-free workplace. But if you're going to do it, you ought to do it right. If you're not going to do it right, you shouldn't do it because right. the potential down the road. It, you know, the first thing an attorney, when when you fire Bob for a positive drug test, regardless of what state you're in, and Bob says, well, you know. Uh, they didn't. They they never told me they had a drug policy here, or they never handed me a drug policy. The attorney that they're talking to says, "Oh my goodness, they didn't. They never handed you a policy." And he's going to serve a subpoena, a discovery subpoena, on that employer, and he's going to say, "Provide me your drug policy. Tell me who wrote your drug policy. Tell me the last time it was updated." Tell me blah, 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 blah. And as you're answering these questions, you can either see as the employer, your defense getting stronger or it's time to start negotiating the case. And that's why if you're going to be a drug-free workplace, whether you've got three employees or you've got 300 employees, your policy is the first brick in the building that you're building. And if you don't have that, you need to step back and, and get your policy. You, d you just don't wake up one day and say, hey, everybody, we're going to start testing. You can do that. And if you send them to me, I appreciate that, or send them to you. But it's not, but it's not the right way to go when that one problem develops a year or two down the road. Correct. You'll wish you had spent the $400 or whatever it is to do a policy versus the, the $5,000 retainer that the attorney you just met with wants to defend your company against that employee. There was a, a while back, you and I had a conversation about policies and procedures, and, and this was one of the questions that I had asked you, is about helping an employer understand where they can find that money. And, and you gave me the same answer that uh, another individual gave me, and I found it very telling because I was able to use it with one of my clients, that they said, well, I don't think I can afford this uh, to be able to do it, not only the testing, but also a policy. And I told them, uh, that one of the suggestions you gave me is check with your liability insurance. A lot of times they will give you a discount for having or in, in implementing a drug-free workplace. And when I did that with this employer, he realized the cost that he was going to save just in his insurance was not only going to pay for his drug testing for that year, 
but it also was the money that he needed to get that policy that he was wanting and getting it done right. So there are ways for employers to do it. They just have to really look at their situation and, and be able to look outside the box sometimes to find that. Um, oh, you're with, right. You're right. Yeah. So thank you for that because it helped one of my own clients when I when I talked to them. Um, with the clearinghouse coming up, that has to be addressed in uh, the policy. What are they looking for with that? Do you do you see that as being something that? So I've already bought my policy. I may have had it a year ago or even two years ago. Am I going to have to get a whole new policy, or can I get an addendum to that, or how does that work? Well, no, DOT is requiring uh, that every regulated employer that falls under the jurisdiction of the FMCSA Clearinghouse add an addendum to their drug policy, their DOT drug policy, explaining to the employees how they have to register, how the employers have to register for the clearinghouse, what's going to be reported to the clearinghouse, what the process is, um, a basic general description of what the FMCSA clearinghouse is and how it's going to affect that particular employee. Uh, you don't have to redo a whole policy. You simply have to have an addendum to it. It's not an option. It's in the rule. Uh, we're writing a lot of them right now for DOT employers. Um, so they don't have to rewrite the policy, but they do have to have an addendum. Um, you know, because there's a lot of there, there's a lot of steps to this whole thing. It's a little confusing, um, but uh, uh, as we say around here, we're making the clearinghouse clear. Yeah. And uh, but there are a lot of employers that uh, uh, you know. We just spoke to a lot of truckers last week, and they don't understand it. They didn't even know. <laughs> you know, the, the government thinks everybody has instant communication, and. Uh, uh, you know, we did one state the other day, we pulled DOT's list of every CDL operator, and there were 91,000 emails attached to their license, and when we scrubbed it, only 43,000 were valid emails, not even half. Oh, so how, uh, how DOT intends to communicate with these people uh, is going to be quite interesting, but um, it starts January 6th. Um, we're rocking and rolling here with it. Uh, it does have uh, some parts to it that we're going to have to see how human nature affects uh, the whole thing. But uh, but you do have to have an addendum. Correct. If you're an employer. Yes. So, Jim, you've you've given us a lot to think about, especially with these policies and procedures. And I think we've we've uh, validated that it's it's crucial for any business to have them, regardless of whether it's FMCSA or if it's a non-DOT uh, business that just having it just makes sense and it's something that you should have. It's like life insurance. Um, it's just something that you need to have just in case um, to take care and cover you and your employees and to let them know that it is something that's important and something that you do in your workplace. So now that we've talked about that, I need to get this. So how would somebody contact you if they're wanting to get this, what's the steps or the procedures they would need to do next if they wanted to get a hold of, of uh, Jim Greer and, and have your company help them navigate themselves through all of the, this red tape with policies, the clearinghouse, all this stuff? What would they need to do? Uh, well, they can reach out to me at Jim uh, or they can call our, our main office at 1 800 221 4291. Um, they can speak to anyone here. We're very good on training all of our staff. 
Uh, the young lady out front who answers the phone can talk to you about the clearinghouse. Um, so all the staff is very well versed on pretty much everything we do here. And we're always available to answer questions. Uh, I got on the phone today with a, a gentleman who's a VP of a company, and he had about uh, 30, probably about 15 questions he wanted <laughs> to ask me, and he wasn't paying anything. He wasn't paying a bill. Uh, he just wanted to ask me some questions, and I feel confident that in the next few days, he'll be back on the line wanting to uh, to hire accredited drug testing. Um, but we're always here. We're always available, and um, we have clients throughout the whole country. Uh, from California to Colorado to Pennsylvania, and um, we're always ready to help anybody, whether it's a DOT-regulated employer or if it's a non-DOT-regulated employer uh, or just an individual. We we talk to a lot of moms and dads that are concerned about their children using drugs um, and so on. So so anything to do with any of that, we're we're here to help. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jim. I really appreciate uh, what you're doing. I just wanted to take a moment to uh, um, at least acknowledge you and the wealth of knowledge and, and what you have done for this industry in being a leader in helping un- people understand the importance of this industry, the things that need to be done to protect employers. And it, it is admirable that you're out there every day doing it, that you're not just somebody that is in name only but they can actually get a hold of whether it's email or even talking to them and like you just said you just gave them your information that they can get a hold of you at any time and so i just wanted to acknowledge that and thank you for your ability to do that and to give us that guidance and direction that we need uh, you've been really instrumental with uh, the national drug and alcohol screening association in helping us to establish standards for drug and alcohol screening um, companies not only your own but nationally uh, so that we're all being consistent in what we do and the education and, and what we stand for. And so I just wanted to thank you for that and acknowledge you for that uh, and let you know that it's appreciated. Um, well, thank you very much, Chuck. And let, let me just say you're a great asset to this industry, too. You and your company do wonderful things. And uh, I thank you for everything you do for the industry, but also serving as a member of the board of directors of the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. Uh, it's a pleasure to serve with you on that board. And and I know you're very engaged in everything that's going on in Colorado every day, and including keeping me apprised of what the weather is like. Uh, it's, about, it's about 95 degrees out here in Florida, and I think it's snowing where you are right now. So uh, I'm not liking you very much right now, Jim. <laughs> And uh, the other thing is, is there is going to be a class this next week or a a seminar that's going to be offered. Can you talk a little bit about that before we close? Sure. Uh, The National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association is having a webinar on the FMCSA Clearinghouse, if that's the one you were talking about. Correct. It's going to be on November 20th. You can go to NDASA.com to sign up for that webinar. Uh, both myself and John Burgos, who works with me, he'll be given the uh, will be given the seminar. And then there is actually a live presentation coming up in Phoenix uh, about the FMCSA uh, uh, clearinghouse, and I believe that's on the sixth. Uh, and then there's one on the thirteenth in Florida. Correct. So we've got some live seminars sponsored by the association, and then we've got a nationwide webinar on the twentieth of November. So excellent. Well, Jim, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on here. And I always like to end our our interviews with our guests because they all have different backgrounds and different 
um, takes on uh, what they do as an entrepreneur. And, and with you being as successful as you've been, and I know that education is something that's very important to you, obviously, with your credentials and things like that. I have found that continued education through books and learning it just goes hand in hand in being successful. And so I always like to ask if there's if there's one book, if there's one bit of information that you would give to your own employees or somebody was to talk to you that you would just say to them, hey, look, you really need to read this book or this is something that is really going to help you at this time. What book or what would you recommend to them at this time to help them in, in what they're doing? Well, there's a book that I read frequently. I go back and read it over and over, and it talks about leadership. Uh, you know, leadership is not necessarily being a boss. Uh, leadership can be anybody on the team uh, that can help guide and lead and mentor uh, the group. And and I happen to have uh, a copy of it. It's by Robert Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense, and he wrote a book called A Passion for Leadership, uh, Lessons on Change and Reform, um, from 50 years in public service. But he talks about uh, being a true leader. You don't have to have a boss. Be a boss. You don't have to have stars on your shoulders. You don't have to be the captain of the football team. But you have to be somebody that contributes to moving the ball down the field and uh, making the organization a success. And there are a few chapters that I frequently go back and read that help me uh, uh, look at things a little differently uh, than if I had come right out of the chute and made the decision, <laughs> yeah. um, which in my younger days I did. Uh, but that, it's a good book. It's called A Passion for Leadership by Robert Gates. Great. I'm going to have to look at that because I have not heard of that book. Um, I'm currently reading two other books right now. One of them that I currently just go back over and over again, I actually hand out copies to my own employees and, and also to people that I'm, I'm inspired to give that book to, and that's The uh, Success Principles. I, mm -hmm. I really enjoy that by Jack Canfield, and it's something that I've found. It's the same thing. I go back to it often and look at certain sections of that book. But I want to thank you for that. That will give our listeners something else that they can look at that will help them in their success and their continued education. But, again, Jim, thanks for your time and being with us here on Clearing the Haze this week, and we look forward to having you back sometime and, and talking on a different topic or subject. Well, thank you very much, Chuck. It was a pleasure being here today. We would like to thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Clearing the Haze. Drug and alcohol testing policies are crucial for the success of any business and can help protect not only you, the employer, but also your employees and clients. If you need help in developing your policies or procedures or just suggestions on how to implement them in your workplace, feel free to contact either Jim Greer at jim at accredittedrugtesting.com or myself at helpclearthehaze at gmail.com. If you feel this episode could be helpful for a business owner you know, share this week's link with them. It could very well be the help they need to protect what they have also worked so hard to achieve. Until next week, remember, it's your vision, it's your dream, and it's your business. Take care. <laughs>